0: They basically tried to, you know, paint this as the Biden administration interfering with free speech. And the judge, you know, issued a pretty, you know, shocking ruling, it was 150 pages on July 4th. I, I'm not sure anyone was expecting a ruling to come out on July 4th.
1: Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley and Hollywood and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Thursday, July 6th. Today I'm joined by Eric Gardner to discuss a wild judicial story that popped on the 4th of July. A federal ruling in Louisiana that restricts the Biden White House or any federal agency from communicating with tech and social media platforms to remove harmful content. Conservatives are celebrating the ruling as a victory against big tech. But does this opinion have any chance of surviving on its likely path to the Supreme Court? And later, Lauren Sherman and Ben are here to discuss her reporting on Kanye's new business venture with the former CEO of American Apparel, Doug Charney. We'll discuss all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Happy Thursday, everybody. Welcome to the powers that be. Two days ago on Independence Day, a federal judge in the U.S. District Court in the Western District of Louisiana ruled that the Biden administration could not communicate with social media platforms about content moderation. A lot of this stems from conservatives, people on the right, people who were skeptics of the COVID vaccine, basically complaining that the government was meddling with tech companies to censor free speech. And this has now made it into the federal courts and it might go all the way to the Supreme Court. For some analysis on this, I'm joined by our Eric Gardner, our legal maven. Eric, a lot of people on the right uh, and Robert F. Kennedy Jr., whatever ideology he is, are celebrating this. This came down on the, you know, 4th of July. The Attorney General of Louisiana, who was one of the people who filed the lawsuit, said happy Independence Day. And then... Predictably, a lot of people on the left are furious about this. David Axelrod tweeted, turns out you can now shout fire in a crowded room that this is crazy, that the government can't even talk to big social media platforms like Twitter or Meta, which owns Facebook and Instagram, about possibly taking content down that is either inflammatory or dangerous or a threat to public health. So walk us through this. What exactly does this ruling say? And... Can the Biden administration no longer even have anyone in any tentacle of government like send an email to somebody at Twitter or Facebook?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty out there ruling. I mean, I know that a lot of uh, people uh, celebrated July 4th with fireworks. Uh, same with me, except my fireworks were, were my my social media feed. Like just go ape over this <laughs> incredible ruling. So it started with yeah, conservatives, you know, basically saying that they're censored. A lot of the conservative efforts have been directed at the social media companies to get them to stop censoring them. But here was a case that was aimed at the government, aimed at proving that, you know, Biden officials were, were essentially jawboning these social media companies. They were flagging posts, they were, you know, trying to work with them uh, to stop COVID misinformation or election fraud or the Hunter Biden laptop story, that sort of thing. And so what happened was the attorney generals of Missouri and Louisiana brought this lawsuit and then they collected a lot of discovery. They judge authorized depositions with all sorts of uh, Biden officials and they collected emails and they basically tried to you know, paint this as the Biden administration interfering with free speech. And the judge, you know, issued a pretty, you know, shocking ruling. It was 150 pages on July 4th. i, I do not not sure anyone was expecting a ruling to come out on July 4th. Like, why that day of, of all days? But anyway, the judge basically says that the Biden officials can't contact social media companies on certain things. But, but the judge also carves out, uh, you know, a bunch of other stuff that they... Uh, Biden administration is allowed to do. For instance, they're allowed to contact social media companies about criminal conspiracies or national security threats or voting suppression or foreign attempts to influence the election, those sorts of things. So it left a lot of people scratching their heads. This is basically a decision that, that came out from nowhere. There's very little citations in the opinion itself about, you know, what... The basis for for this is so obviously it's going to be a you know pretty interesting appeal coming.
1: Yeah, the judge Terry Dowdy is a Trump appointee. He was appointed in 2017, and I, I looked it up actually back in 2021. He issued a, a an injunction against a federal mandate that healthcare workers should get the COVID vaccine. So I mean he's clearly ideological on this topic at least. <laughs> but you mentioned he, there weren't a lot of citations. I mean, what did he point to? as an example of how the federal government has somehow meddled with content moderation on these platforms. And it should be said, you know, the Trump administration was in contact with the platforms as well before Biden came along. Right.
0: You know, interestingly, the, the ruling starts off with a famous quote about, you know, how uh, I may disapprove of something that you say, but it will defend the, the death your right to say it. And the judge got the name of the author wrong. Uh, so it starts off with a little bit of misinformation. Then, you know, the, the judge basically goes through, you know, White House is uh, you know, one of its staffers contacting Facebook and, and basically saying, you know, like I'm I'm gravely concerned that your service is one of the top drivers of vaccine hesitancy. So so those sorts of communications. It also kind of mentions the fact that, you know, that potentially the, the administration was holding up reform of section 230. Over over these the heads of tech companies as it as if the Biden administration could unilaterally change change the law. So basically, that that was a rundown of the thing. As for as for like the basis of this, it, it's kind of interesting. There was one political commentator in California who had tried to sue the the state of of California, saying that you know his posts about election about about california's elect fraud was taken down at the behest of california secretary of state Mm -hmm. and so this random you know guy tried to make the case that that there was some sort of conspiracy at hand and the case was like quickly thrown out and it was affirmed on by the ninth circuit and nobody thought that much of the case but it, it turns out that 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 case of all the cases out there is was identified as being like the the closest to the mark here, and mm-hmm. and the judge kind of like picked up what the plaintiff's argument in that case was and adopted it as the uh, standard here. And basically, the standard is, you know, if there's in specific encouragement, significant encouragement to a social media. Company to suppress speech, then that action can be read not as the social media companies, but as the governments. So the government is basically interfering with free speech here. Now there's no other cases in history of of the republic that that basically stand for the same thing. And what's pretty astonishing here is that you know the the uh, judge is is making a prior restraint is is basically saying me the judge the judicial branch can basically decide what the executive branch can and can't do so it's it's a pretty you know wild decision and that's why you know a lot of lawyers that i know a lot of the scholars first amendment scholars were like like, their eyebrows were were going through the roof on this one because they had never seen something like this
1: yeah i mean appeal likely (laughs) um it should be said too you know and i should i should say i work for snap the parent company of snapchat when i'm not with puck but the responsibility of removing posts that might be harmful, that might contain bad information about elections, about science, et cetera. Those decisions rest with the private companies and government officials, federal agencies, they don't get to tell these private companies what they can and can't post. And importantly, a lot of these companies work with federal agencies in a good way to stop child sexual abuse, human trafficking, terrorism, white supremacy. I know there's probably some people on the right who like, once you get into terms around, you know, right right wing content, white supremacy, etc. Like they then it gets a little too political. But federal agencies need to work with these platforms. For example, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children and the DOJ to sort of stop bad guys from doing bad stuff on the Internet. And so. I'm just curious maybe if this ruling overlooks some of those things that you would think conservatives care about. Certainly, MAGA conservatives make a big show about caring about human trafficking and child sexual abuse.
0: Yeah, I mean, the fact that government agencies have tried to influence the public sphere wasn't invented a few years ago upon the birth of uh, these social media companies. I mean... They've been complaining about what newspapers have been printing since, you know, basically the the founding of the nation. So, I mean, like it, to, to see a decision that like quite literally suggests that this is the most massive attack against free speech in the United States history is just like fantastic and incredible. And it is telling that, you know, that the judge identifies, you know, just a few conservative priorities here, you know. COVID vaccines, Hunter Biden laptop, election uh, integrity, and, you know, kind of ignores all the other (laughs) sorts of ways that the government tries to influence these social media companies. And you're right, social media companies have a legitimate leg to stand up to. Uh, they, They can, you know, resist if they want to. They could say, no, we're not going to do this. And they are pretty well protected because of Section 230. The government can't do anything about that. And for the government to do something on on that, that would be the the illegal thing. So there's you know just a lot of astonishing things and, and reasons to question this. Now the problem is that, you know, yes there will be an appeal but it's going to the Fifth Circuit, which is probably the most conservative circuit in the nation. So it, it is this is going to be a very interesting path going forward
1: well thank you for following it for us and reading a 150 page decision on a day that most people were drinking 150 beers we appreciate it eric thanks so much
0: thanks i get high on the supply yeah
1: (laughs) (laughs) when we come back lawrence sherman is here to talk about kanye's new business venture
3: Welcome back, everybody. I'm Ben Landy here with Lauren Sherman to uh, dissect one of the stranger developments in the fashion business this year. First of all, Lauren, hello. Thanks for being here.
2: Hi, Ben. Thanks for having me. So
3: you confirmed the rumors the other week that Dov Charney, who most of us know is the guy who founded and ran American Apparel before he was ousted in 2014. He is now working with Kanye West on whatever it is that, that Kanye is planning to do with his yeezy brand i have so many questions about this but let's start with why would charny who's already the sort of controversial figure with his own pre me too mini scandal want to work with kanye who is essentially radioactive right now
2: i don't think dove cares at all about whether Kanye is radioactive <laughs> I, he has nothing okay. to lose i would say is the big thing and also i've written about and covered dove And interviewed him a good amount of times over the last, you know, 10, 15 years. And I think he sees this and from talking to people around him as an opportunity to participate in in an art project, whether or not anything comes of it. it, He's not thinking he's going to get rich off of this. I, I don't think that Dove is driven by money. He's really driven by curiosity. And I think he's attracted to insanity or or. Insane situations. And so, everything I know about Dove, I assume he's approaching this as entertainment and, you know, a way to keep going in the business, which what it comes down to with Dove is he's made a lot of really poor business choices, but he is good at producing t shirts and manufacturing in the US and quick turnaround and creating a quality product and all of that stuff. And he is a good manufacturing partner. If Is he a good creative partner for Kanye? That I don't know. And we'll see sort of what comes out of this new relationship.
3: Well, whatever Kanye and Dov do together, and I guess we don't know what it's going to be yet, they would be building this more or less from scratch, right? Like my, my understanding is that Adidas basically owned all of the IP and the designs for Yeezy, everything but the name, really, when they terminated the relationship with Kanye. And the name was valuable because we know Adidas has said that they would save something like three hundred million euros in in licensing and marketing fees to Kanye after they ended this deal. But without the actual product that he was selling before, what is it that they would be selling? I mean, this would this be sort of an extension of the the blanks business that Dov had sort of pioneered?
2: So definitely connected to the blanks business because they're going to be manufacturing out of Dove Charney's factory in Los Angeles, which Dove currently also lives in. Just a, another side note on that. But, you know, the Yeezy Gap was also named Yeezy. It, it's kind of like Fenty with Rihanna. She owns the IP to that. That The name itself is very, very valuable. So he can start from scratch and start a new business. And he has the manufacturing capabilities because of Dove. And, and I'm assuming that is why they decided to partner. They've been working together on and off for many years on different projects. And a lot of those dry, dry cotton t-shirts that came out of Yeezy were manufactured by Dove. So they already have the manufacturing relationship as for what the collection or whatever they release is actually going to look at. There's no time limit. There's no, they're not on a schedule. Again, it's like more like an art project. So whether or not anything actually ever comes out of it, I have no idea. What I do know from talking to people on the Dove side and on the Kanye or Ye side is that he's not interested in making slides. He doesn't want to think about hoodies, these things that had sort of become iconic. The the shoes in particular, obviously, are, are the biggest thing and what you see people wearing a lot. But the few things he did for Gap did sell out and You know, limited runs, but it did perform well. And it was really focused on kind of the basics in his way. So I would say whatever it's going to be, it's not going to be exactly what he did before. It's just the question is, Ye has always been good at having really creative, talented people around him. He knows what's good and what's not. He's a great stylist. That's the word I like to use for him. And he's also good at hiring great designers. The the number of designers that have come through his, the Yeezy business over the last 10 years is staggering. And, and big names that you know, big names that you probably don't know. But who creatively is around him right now is a question. And then the other question is, does he just have the capability? You saw what happened with Gap where it took forever for them to make anything. And Granted, I I don't want to give him too much credit, but dealing with a corporation like Gap is really challenging. When I was reporting on his relationship with them, one thing that kind of came out was just you can't have have pre-existing holes in a Gap product because it's like a fire hazard or something. There's all these weird corporate rules that he was dealing with. So that stretched it out even further. But also, it just took him forever to get anything done. So now he has no deadlines. He has no one... Telling him, hey, we gotta stick to the plan. He right now is backing this himself and then also has the free capability of Dove Charney's factory. So doesn't seem like they've raised any outside capital just yet to to make this work. So there isn't really any pressure. So we might still be talking about this in six months. Their relationship might be dissolved by then. Kanye does sort of cycle people in and out. And this is the closest they've been over the course of their business partnership. So so we'll see.
3: Yeah, that's a great caveat. I mean, obviously, nothing might come out of this. Kanye might become more toxic. We, we don't know if he'll go on another sort of unhinged rant. And, and by the way, not to sugarcoat it. I mean, he really w- went on a, a, a truly deranged and, and hateful rant last year about jews and about all sorts of people that that really made him untouchable which i guess leads me back to this question is there a viable business is there a receptive market for whatever these two might do or or what kanye might do in the future himself i mean obviously dove previously built a real business empire he knows the logistics and the manufacturing side in particular as you noted but like what's the market for kanye After all the things that he's said over the last year, I mean, maybe Charney sees it as all sort of a goof or performance art or whatever, but it is sort of hard to imagine there being a big market for either of these men to sell into.
2: From inside the fashion industry, the high fashion industry, I don't think there's a lot of empathy or sympathy for Kanye at this point. I remember I came home from Milan at the end of September 2022 and was sitting at my desk in Los Angeles when kanye staged his white lives matter collection in paris and seeing that all kind of go down from outside of the city and kind of talking to people in the industry who are dealing with him what he did over the course of those ne- that next month I think it really ended things for him. The word I used when I was writing about it was the, the industry had indulged Kanye for so long and that sort of stopped. I'm not sure if with the Adidas partnership done with gap, the failure of gap, if high fashion industry will bother letting him back in like they, it's a very forgiving industry. Look at John Galliano and, and his ouster from Dior, and then back to Margiela. And, you know, that's pretty much all forgotten. But he isn't going to make anyone any money at this point other than himself. So until he becomes a valuable commercial asset again, to the fashion industry, I think they're pretty much done with him. That being said, inside fashion and the consumer, the broader consumer are two different things. And I a reader who works at the intersection of media and entertainment wrote to me and said, I see what you're saying. I agree with pretty much everything you've said. But the big question is, people are still wearing Yeezys. People outside of the US like don't really care about these hate rants that he went on. And honestly, a lot of people in the U.S. also don't care. So is there a big audience for him still? Yes, there is. And so the question is, can he make something that the audience wants to buy? And if he can, then this whole thing could turn around for him. People, like I said, are very forgiving. Right now, fashion inside don't care. But fashion outside does and you see this with so many brands that especially in in places like china where it's just the perceptions are so different balenciaga for instance has really struggled for the last year in the us after all this crazy QAnon stuff that happened last fall with with that brand which is weirdly demna the creative director there was closely associated with kanye up until about a year ago, but it's still doing super well in China. If you look at a designer like Alexander Wang, who had a sort of Me Too adjacent scandal at the beginning of 2021, I think it was, his business is still booming in China. So there is commercial viability. It's just a matter of, is he going to make something that is so culturally relevant that we all have to pay attention? Or is it going to be one of these sort of, siloed off ventures that one group of people really adopts or or is it somehow going to seep into what is left of the monoculture mono that we still have that the jury is out on
3: yeah i'm glad you brought that that comparison up so there is this question is kanye galliano is he wang Obviously, there's something a little bit different here in that he would um, ostensibly be building a new product, a new business, essentially from scratch, whereas there we're talking about existing fashion empires where sales dropped back, but consumers were forgiving, consumers forgot, and they were able to resuscitate sales. But we'll see what happens. Um, You you were just telling me offline that um, Kanye and Dove were uh, spotted together in Tokyo. So whatever it is that they are cooking up or not cooking up, they are definitely hanging out. They're definitely talking to each other. Something is happening. So um, we will stay tuned and see what happens.
2: Yeah, I look and thank you to all of the readers for the updates. I just got an image of Kanye at a hotel this morning in Tokyo. So I appreciate the play by play from our loyal listeners. (laughs)
3: Yeah, yeah. Keep the tips coming to uh, lauren at puck.news. We we always enjoy the updates. Lauren, thanks for being here.
2: Thanks for having me.
3: Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.